Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the first episode of Three Daisy Things. So what are we here for again? We're here to discover little known facts about the food, people and culture of the South Asian subcontinent. I'm Geetika. I'm an epidemiologist. I'm Saurabh. I'm a journalist. I'm Veda. I'm a journalist as well. Cool. So shall we begin? Let's do it. Okay, cool. So I wanted to start us off by talking about the gin and tonic, my favorite drink, and its connection to India. Gin and tonics were actually created in 19th century colonial India as a preventative measure for malaria. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Tell us more. Quinine, which is a substance found in tonic, is a compound that prevents malaria. But it's so bitter that British officials stationed in India were refusing to take it by itself. Like they were given their like they were allocated a certain amount of quinine um, per day and they were just refusing to take it till somebody started mixing it with water, sugar, lime and gin. And suddenly the drink became very palatable and they were drinking it by the gallons. Wow. Who knew? What we now think of as this like casual summertime drink, Winston Churchill said that the gin and tonic has saved more Englishmen's lives and minds than all the doctors in the empire. Do, that's, that's amazing. Do we know who, who invented this thing? So, I mean, gin's been around for a while, but the tonic water, which um, contained the quinine, was uh, invented by this guy named Erasmus Bond in 1858. And perhaps not so coincidentally, the very same year, the British government ousted the East India Company and took direct control of India. Um, this was like right after the Sepoy Rebellion. And this was a huge problem in on like uh, the South Asian subcontinent. And I think they were looking for re like ways to make this go away. So Erasmus Bond was like, "Ooh, I got a thing put this with gin and you guys can like continue to take it. And now it's just become like a British staple. So this was, uh, they were prioritizing the British soldiers, right? Yeah. I don't think like the native Indians were drinking gin and tonics at this time, but you do see like kind of, I don't think people know about this, but then if you look at brand names of gins and tonics, there's actually a lot of reference to India, right? There's like at Whole Foods in the US, you get like the great Indian tonic. And then there's like Bombay Sapphire is a very popular type of gin. Right. So like the cultural roots of this alcohol are definitely based in the colonial Raj. That tonic water must have had a lot of this quinine because, you know, I was I was reading up that like in terms of now, you'd have to drink almost 20 liters of tonic water because it's so much more diluted now to achieve the daily dose that's typically prescribed for malaria. So, so don't try <laughs> so, this to prevent malaria now. So like now, please take whatever malaria preventative medication you've been prescribed because it's not going to work. But people do still take like quinine or quinine um, for like other health benefits like a friend of mine her grandma <laughs> claims that she has to drink gin and tonics for her muscles like she's always like guys i must have two gin and tonics a day for my muscles because apparently the quinine like relaxes them or something i that's not scientific i'm just saying anecdotally 
So there are a lot of variants and like derivatives of it now. And one such drug is became really famous this year in the pandemic, HCQ hydroxychloroquine, um, <laughs> and which people were trying to Donald Trump's favorite drug, <laughs> trying to use it for Corona. Um, it's actually a very popular anti-malarial drug. But there's no effect of it on coronavirus. No, in fact, a paper just came out um, in November of 2020, just marking that paper. Um, I, I can look up the citation, but it just said that we have categorically are now saying that hydroxychloroquine does nothing to coronavirus, will prevent malaria. Right. That's that's super cool. But uh, this India Pale Ale or something like that, does that also have a history in India or is that just a name? No, it actually does have a history in India. It's, again, it's, you know, a lot of these things were made because of, uh, like, necessity, right? So, like, the India Pale Ale came about because people were, from Britain, were trying to ship beer or ale to Australia and India and New Zealand because that was a favorite of the officers. And they could, it was spoiling on the way. So, one... uh beer had an increased hop content it was called october beer at the time and it was like very highly hopped and um by the time it got to india it was still good and it had kind of this unique flavor and then it became very popular at that time and still remains fairly popular today that's awesome you know um i was i was reading that a lot of these um from this period um onwards um, a lot of these breweries and liquor distillation factories um, started around in and around Bangalore or Bengaluru as it's now known. Um, and so actually the roots of the city being like kind of like a de facto pub capital in India um, reach back to this like British colonial time. And there are a lot of breweries from the colonial time that were, you know, have their antecedents and then and then were handed over after independence. Um, and Kingfisher Beer and the United Breweries Group um, traces its uh, roots to this, to this like brewery uh, culture there. So Kingfisher Beer was previously owned by the British Raj, and then I think the breweries in that in that area then eventually became. Uh, mm. The consortium United Breweries that now produces Kingfisher beer. That's funny because Malia is now in uh, <laughs> London as a fugitive, right? Right. <laughs> what goes? It just—it's a circle of life. <laughs> Wait, but are, is Kingfisher? So he's in the UK, but is Kingfisher still being produced? Yeah, yeah. It's just owned by somebody else. He's the fugitive, but the company is still around. <laughs> Right. His father, Vito Malia, got um, apparently some of these breweries. And then that's like how Vijay Malia became apparently like the head of this. And now he's, as Sarb said, um, you know, <laughs> on the lamp, fleeing the law. But uh, Kingfisher is very popular. I mean, it's like it's like the, one of the uh, like common indigenous beers uh, that people drink here. Indigenous. <laughs> the operative term being. Uh, that's so interesting. It's also interesting how recently that happened, right? Like his father got this brewery or acquired this brewery from when like the Brits left. And so it's like only a few generations ago that I know that sounds silly, but like 1947 wasn't that long ago. 
but it's not like alcohol itself is uh, new to india because like there's evidence uh, going back to the indus valley civilization where uh, people have been uh, not brewing but kind of like fermenting uh, alcohol um and i think like there used to be a beverage called sura uh, which was distilled from rice so this is going back to 3000 bc so it's not like alcohol is really new to us oh that's so interesting is- what are the um like texts and stuff that like talk about this so i was reading this book called uh, indian food a historical companion so there's a lot of references to alcohol being distilled from various grains so barley rice wheat i want to say so there's uh, references to uh, alcohol being made from all of these grains and interestingly enough men and women used to drink it too and uh, there was no kind of restriction in that way so it's it's curious that we now look upon alcohol as this forbidden thing or this bad thing that everyone consumes because our own history tells us that we've been consuming alcohol before some a lot right. of other people and Correct me if I'm wrong but like some of the first um distillation kind of uh methodologies are from like India, Egypt, right? Like yeah. They they can be traced down to like the Middle East or South Asia, like that's where it was first seen. Yeah, for sure. Um can I can I mention a side fact related to alcohol and India? Always. <laughs> Please. So, just around the time that the bridge came to india uh, somebody from the us figured out how to transport ice to india and like it's i think this is one of the first or this is probably the first methods or or the first ways in which ice was consumed in a large quantity in india because before that you didn't know how to get ice because india is not really that cold except for some parts so it was this boston businessman called frederick tudor who shipped ice that he cut from the lakes of massachusetts and then put it on a ship and like sent it to india and that's how i started being uh, part of like the party circuit in india at the time <laughs> the party circuit the t- clearly i'm in with the kids <laughs> the hot commodity of the 19th century ice well but the first time it showed up in india weren't like people kind of amazed like they would touch it and run away because like they didn't know what to do with it yeah the first ship came to calcutta Uh, I think it was in 1833. It was called Tuscany. And imagine if you're in Calcutta in 1833, you've probably not seen ice. I don't know if Calcutta doesn't get that cold. So people are touching it and they're like running away because they're so scared and they don't know what this is about. So I can like you can totally uh, get that because I mean the opposite. When I came here and when I f- saw snow for the first time, I was fascinated. <laughs> so ice and some of these drinks are kind of. coming up like in a comparative time right because like a warm gin and tonic is kind of gross but a cold gin and tonic is very refreshing also it must have been such a boon to the british officers who are used to such cooler climates to suddenly have access to things that are like cool down food and drink for them in this tropical environment yeah tudor became a millionaire he was called the ice king so he made a shit People ton of money rich from the weirdest shit Yeah, he's so he's from around here, right? He's from Boston. So he made a shit ton of money shipping ice to all of these colonies. So he shipped it to the Caribbean, he shipped it to India. I think he also did it to Australia, and he made a lot of money just sending ice to all of these places. And he would just what? Like chop it from rivers and lakes around him? Like where was he making it? 
so i mean lakes freeze here in massachusetts and in the northeast in winter right so he would just cut up pieces like he figured out the exact size yeah that you could send without it having to melt and he would put sawdust on it and apparently if you put sawdust and pack it tightly together oh, it won't melt oh that preserves yeah. it yeah i i would just so, want to say that i think it's interesting that in this context ice king is a positive thing <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when is ice king negative? The term ice queen, it's like, not, not a, not a, it's kind of a pejorative against women, so. Yeah, it's like a woman who's very cold and not like warm and cuddly as women are supposed to be. Patriarchy. Yeah, with the crowd. <laughs> yeah. I, I know. Because you said clubs. party circuit. You know the party from... circuit of Calcutta 19th century. <laughs> but, okay, I mean, I think in conclusion cocktails and the way we drink alcohol right now has been heavily influenced by you know the indian subcontinent trying to save lives from malaria and just do it with a good buzz you know anything else on ice no keep drinking those gin and tonics bros all right babes what do you got for us this week all right, so my thing for today is about the British colonial culture of hill stations and how their hill towns or summer abodes were actually in part driven by a desire to reduce their exposure to malaria um, and recover from such infectious diseases. Um, and so clearly malaria is like on like a huge issue there. It's on their mind, whether it's like trying to figure out a way to get it to the British soldiers or how to reduce their exposure. Um, and, um, you know, actually like a sanatorium um, for the British army was built in one of these hill stations in Landor, you know, for afflicted soldiers to recover. And you visited Landor recently, right? Yes. Um, I actually, you know, saw some of these signs for like, oh, this is like where they used to have the sanatorium, etc. And um, it was just a, very interesting to kind of think about, you know, how these towns were kind of developed. Um, because, you know, these towns are kind of at a higher elevation, um, you know, from the plains. Um, so they're, you know, they're, it's, it's difficult to drive to them, they in the sense that they're uh, more narrow, smaller uh, one-way roads, um, uh, going through like more mountainous areas in the Himalayan range, um, and so at least where Landor and Masuri are, there are hill stations all over um, the country um, in different parts. But um, that's it's interesting to kind of they're very popular vacation spots even now but it's kind of interesting to think about how they developed and and why and 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 it was due to this desire of trying to escape disease but that didn't necessarily work out <laughs> yeah so i was gonna ask did it work like if you went to landor then you didn't get malaria i think uh, no it, it didn't in the sense that eventually enough people started coming uh there that people were getting sick and so they kind of transformed to um you know areas for them to recover and kind of vacation spots and some of these places like shimla shimla is one of the most famous was you know the summer capital they you know completely shifted to do um a lot of their administrative work from there i've been to shimla as as well uh before um and they're they continue to be like kind of that vacation kind of 
uh, there's that social vacation kind of culture that developed for the British. Um, and that continues even now. And what I thought was kind of interesting going off that veins was that doctors of that time kind of wrote, right? Like it's not the British Raj is paying for like all of these people to like transfer their capital and like move into these lovely vacation homes. But doctors of their time are writing to each other saying things like the travel to the hills is not like curative or preventative to malaria and that sort of stuff. But it's like very restorative because, you know, these people are exhausted. So they get to relax and, you know, whatever, which to me just sounds like vacation, right? Like it's just doctors being like, if you chill, you'll feel better. But it has nothing to do with malaria. But they keep doing it and they keep using malaria as an excuse. Right. They're, I mean, I think, I think they're also like homesick, right? And so like some of these, you know, these areas have, uh, you know, just the trees and the, how uh, the, ge- the geography is um, reminds them of, you know, some of their towns in the United Kingdom. Probably that familiarity added to that wanting to hang out there and feeling relaxed. One interesting side fact that I also found about Landor was that I think it's one of the first places in India or one of the few places in India where they have American missionaries. Really? Yeah. Oh. And so that's why they have a school there, right? They have a missionary school there. Wait, so for me and others who might not know, missionaries are people who go to someplace to like promote conversion to Christianity? Yes. All right. So that was also happening. <laughs> but there's a there was a, a long history of, you know, missionaries you know, creating schools and convents and yeah. stuff, you know, in the region. So it's pretty common, I think. True. I think I went to one of those convents when I lived in Bihar. Me and Veda's mom, alumni of the same school. St. Joseph's. St. Joseph's convent for girls. Yeah, it's called the Woodstock School. Okay, interesting, because <laughs> the cottage that I lived in was right above the Woodstock School. Really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that that's the one. There was, I was like, yeah, there is a school, but I didn't realize that the same one. Um, is it still functional? Yeah, it is. It's still functional. So uh, it has like a number of, I'm just looking at its wiki page. Some of the notable alumni are Tom Alter. I love Tom Alter. RIP. His brother or cousin, I think, uh, Stephen Alter, who is an author. Oh. Um, there's Nayantara Sahegal, who's a writer. Carl E. Taylor, international health expert. Do you know him? No. no. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I don't know that guy. You know, it's really interesting because now I kind of get it. Uh, I feel like such a tube light because, um, you know, the friends with whom I went, they, you know, they were explaining that to, you know, their families that, you know, oh, we stayed near the Woodstock school and people were like, oh, the Woodstock school. And I was like, why? Why do you know about that? <laughs> but a lot of the schools, I mean, this just goes back to like how big this became as part of like the British colonial culture. There are a lot of like good schools up in hill stations, right? Like the Dune schools and yeah, there are like these like very elite schools in India are up in these hill stations because I think they're primarily where like where the Brits went. So they kind of got this legacy of like being a really like rigorous British English medium education system. And isn't that also something to do with the railways and hill stations? Yeah, so I mean, the railways, um, you know, that were built under the British Raj as well, um, network kind of thought about trying to reach these places. And so the railway, um, there's like a railway station not far from 
a lot of these hill stations probably just like a they're so that they're accessible about like an hour or so away sometimes even closer which is just shows you how much they were prioritizing you know trying to get there also to go back to the party circuit that sort mentioned previously these uh places became kind of known for their like social like decadent luxurious lifestyle right and they extended not just in india but kind of throughout southeast asia and stuff and there are um letters that americans who visited wrote back detailing just how much food was consumed in these hill stations and how like these guys were indulging so much so that like maybe they weren't getting better because they were just eating like cream and butter and like just like so much food so basically they're no longer like trying to escape malaria or get better they're just like full on having fun like it's on the party circuit (laughs) i'm gonna try to say party circuit as much as possible in my life from now but also, interestingly, they were, like, super elite, right? Like, the natives weren't really allowed to participate in any of this. Like, they basically served as, like, the servers and the cooks and, like, the support staff of these places. So it's just the Brits getting together and, like, having a grand old time. There are a lot of, I mean, you guys mentioned, uh, like, Tom Alder. There are, like, a lot of... Um, people that even now like kind of have their residence in this Musuri land or area and many other hill stations as well like uh Ruskin Bond lives there even now Ruskin Bond's still alive yeah, yeah. speaking of Ruskin Bond he uh he and another person I think Ganesh Saili I think uh, so he released a cookbook that these American missionaries like had written way back in the early 1900s because these were people in up in the hills or they tra- they're trying to figure out what they could make of their own cuisine. Like at the time when it was released, it was called the Landor Cookbook. And they recently released like a book. Well, not recently, like in 2001, they released a book called Over 100 Years of Hillside Cooking. So are these like fusion recipes? I think the cookbook deals with how to make American food 7,000 feet above sea level because they don't, you don't have the same set of instruments and... So what are what are they making? I actually saw, I don't know whether it's, uh, sorry, whether it's exactly this book, but, you know, some Landor kind of like specific um, cookbook in one of the stores there. There's like a famous like bakehouse there and they had like some books they were selling. And you're right, basically, I think uh, the, even for like the baking... Like what they realized that they needed to like curate like more specific recipes for like the the elevation and like what's how much is needed and how long you want to ferment stuff and and so on. Yeah, I just thought it was very interesting that there were Americans up there because you usually don't think of Americans having lived in India. It's also really interesting that everybody who went there tried to kind of recreate their own cultural little sphere right like their food their culture they try to recreate it in these hill stations so if you go there now and i've actually never been i feel like it must be quite a mishmash of like old british stuff with the architecture and the railroads and whatever and then this like indian bakehouse not indian american bakehouse and then some of its own native culture it's quite a mix of this like what's called like pahari culture and food and then um a lot of different groups that kind of like there's also um a, a lot of Tibetan communities in hill stations that are also, you know, that Tibetan food and restaurants have also come up because of that. 
This has now become like a hill station tourist ad. Like, everybody go. The food is so good. I, you know, I'm glad that we're talking about this because, you know, the food is such a big part of like the, the hill station culture even now. It's like people are just like, even now, people are just like eating and eating. <laughs> like, it's like you're getting like the baked goods. You're getting like, you know, the local like, in, like native indigenous food. You're getting this like you know all sorts of like mix of foods well you mentioned some bakehouse right so i kind of read about that place i forgot its name i think it's prakash or something there's some prakash store and then there's a land or bakehouse and they're like next next to each other okay i read that it's quite a legendary store and another cool fact that i learned and I, i can't really find the exact historical reference for this but apparently landor is one of the first places where uh peanut butter was made in india really yeah unfortunately i can't find like the exact reference but i have read a like a news article or like a blog post or something i i can't exactly confirm this if it's true but it makes sense if it's one of the first american settlements so it makes sense that peanut butter would be from there <laughs> well they do have the peanut butter they do sell the peanut butter even now so there i think there's something to that Yeah because peanut butter is only now becoming like popular in India right we never grew up eating peanut butter at all but it's so interesting that like <laughs> i think of peanut butter as like a quintessentially american food um that's like spread so it's so funny that like they would go there in like whatever the early 1900s and be like but we must find a way to get our peanut butter everyone just like wants to bring like you know the things that they're comfortable with and a piece of their home and it's just it shows actually how much you mentioned this and I just want to echo this like if they're creating like a if they're recreating recipes if they're like you know bringing creating peanut butter if they're like ha- you know making all these foods here it just shows how much that this like culture of being in these places the hill stations was kind of a like a permanent state for them and like a long term kind of state that like every year they're going to do this so might as well invest in like in figuring out how to make all these foods here yeah now i just really want to go to landor <laughs> it's very beautiful I mean think of our communities here right like Jersey City you can get fucking pan on the streets which is insane to me like like you guys must be used to it maybe but like it's insane that you can get in New Jersey you can there's like a pan shop where you can get cigarettes and like pan like it's India But I don't think it it like I mean to kind of I guess wrap it up and bring it back to us living in America it's it's not we're not used to it right like Vedas and I grew up here and there was a time where that didn't exist and like the cropping up of Edison New York or Curry Hill in New York City is really exciting but it's i guess it's us doing Edison, what New they Jersey. Edison New Jersey but Curry Hill in New York City okay. or Murray Hill but you know colloquially called Curry Hill but like we are doing the same thing now we're just trying to use what we have around us to recreate the world we knew back home it's a very human experience And and this is you know this is happening because we you know there's we have the numbers and like a little like there's been enough you know 30 40 years of like seeing this many numbers of Indian immigrants in the US now imagine there like they they're kind of in power right the raj there they have huge numbers of people coming over and they're there for you know so so much time like you know they'd already been there for a few hundred years so um really like the tentacles are everywhere <laughs> like, no that's really cool and i i actually i've never thought about that like same parallel happening in like 
the UK or America now, but it is, right? Like you have these like very solidly South Asian neighborhoods and you can get Bond and Raj Kachori and whatever the hell you want. All we need to do is set up our uh, vacation spots, Indian vacation Dude. spots over here. <laughs> I would love to. Like New Hampshire, just buy a town, Vermont. I'll call it Srinagar, I'll resettle it. Can I mention one more fact that I forgot? Yes, sorry. <laughs> the Dalai Lama lives in one of these hill stations, right? Right, so Dharamshala and Maklod Gunj are in uh, Himachal, and uh, you know that is where the Dalai Lama's abode is, and where there is a you know museum and and a huge Tibetan community, uh, refugee community there. And Maklod Gunj is also has is like a very popular place for people to visit, and also has some amazing baked goods. <laughs> In addition to amazing momos. <laughs> also, apparently, amazing weed. I'm oh, sure. nice. <laughs> Beatha doesn't know anything about that. She doesn't indulge in these. Neither do I. I cannot confirm or deny any knowledge of such things. I can confirm that I don't indulge in any of this. USCIS. <laughs> Completely legal. Absolutely following all rules. <laughs> don't even speed. I don't, I don't do anything. Please let me be a citizen. All right, so we are all deep in vaccine world. Uh, and I kind of went down the rabbit hole of looking into vaccines. And that's what brought me to my thing or fact for today, which is about the world's first vaccine, which is the smallpox vaccine. And there were two Indian queens who posed as models for this vaccine to help popularize it and make people get the vaccine and believe in the vaccine. So they did wow. like a PSA? Right. So I found this fact in a BBC article by Aparna Luri. So they, they modeled for a poster. I mean, in those times, a poster was just a painting. <laughs> <laughs> the OG poster, an oil painting. So there were these two queens from the Odiar family or Wadiar family from the kingdom of Mysore, uh, which is... Uh, where Tipu Sultan is from. Uh, and this was in 1806. Uh, so these queens, both of whom were named Deva Jamani, they modeled for this uh, smallpox vaccine painting to make it cool or make it acceptable for everybody else in the kingdom to get the vaccine. That's really interesting. And what's kind of cool, um, so it's, Correct me if I'm wrong, sorry, but it's the younger queen who gets the actual vaccine, right? Like the yes. Um, and then the older queen. Um, there's three women in this poster. So there's the queen mother, who's the grandmother to the king, and then his first wife and his second wife. And his first wife actually seems to be um, seems to have also gotten a very early form of the vaccination called virulation, which is when they like had you inhale the virus so you could have a localized infection. But it was super dangerous because a lot of people still died from that. But you can tell that this family has been like a part of this vaccination story for a while, which I thought was like kind of interesting. Isn't it true that before this vaccine, um, like an early effort at inoculation is like some form of actually what the Hindu practice of of Tika is? Yeah, I think so. Guys, I told you not to look at WhatsApp forwards. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, this is a 
I read about this in the New Yorker in a piece by Siddhartha Mukherjee, so I think it's real. Siddhartha Mukherjee is not the basis of WhatsApp forward. Wait, tell us more about this, Vela, because I think this is super interesting. So basically, I think that they would take, you know, a little bit of the smallpox pustule, like the live virus, and apply a little bit of it to the uninfected person and there were these you know these people like the that were called like dikadars so we were like you know who used to kind of walk around and try and like get people to vaccinated and it was kind of like a high risk procedure because if you like put a little too much then the person can get sick uh like too sick um and and not just develop immunity but that i believe is like one of the practices that were they were using before this and when the actual this this you know more scientific new new version of the vaccine came came about these dikadars were really threatened and they were like hey don't take away our jobs yeah this was like a union problem at the time they really got very upset because this had become a huge part of their livelihood because smallpox was such a huge issue. And I think something that's important to mention about the smallpox vaccine is like how it actually got to India because like we didn't have method, like we didn't have dry ice. We didn't have a way to like preserve the vaccine, right? Like we've been talking a lot in terms of coronavirus with the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine and like how they need to be stored, etc. They didn't have any of that. They used to do something that was called arm to arm transfer. So like you would put this in someone's arm, a pustule would develop with pus in it. Then you would take the pus from that pustule, put it into the next person's arm and do it serially on the ship till you got to India. And then you could take the pus from this person's arm and put it to somebody like on land in the country. And like, this is how they got it to India, which one is gross. But two, you can see why people might be a little reluctant to have like the pus of another man put into their body. Kind of, kind of understanding why they needed the the princesses too or the queens <laughs> to be posing in this painting trust was low how did people not get infected with this pus but the pus is kind of like a dilute form of the virus like it's the like the virus theory still works but like it's gross right and oh sorry we forgot to mention that the smallpox vaccine so what the tikadars are putting in or virulation is actually the smallpox virus What's going from the pustule to pustule in this arm-to-arm transfer is a cowpox virus, which leads to a very mild form of the disease so that like you develop the immunity, but you don't have full disease. So like that, that should be made clear. Also, by the way, the, these Indian uh, tikadars actually like learned it from, it came from like other areas, like probably from Arabic doctors and the Chinese healers, because this was like obviously a global problem. So at the time, they were also like all kind of one learning from the other. Kind of how it's happening right now. <laughs> well, tell me this, though, like the Brits were really that upset about Indians having smallpox that they like cared enough to vaccinate us. No, they were worried about the expat population once again. This you need enough of the population to be inoculated to protect their own kind. Yeah, you're right. They wanted to protect the like the expat population and also because they wanted to protect Europe and like UK because a lot of people came to India and went back and they didn't want the disease going back. Oh, okay. For trade and stuff. Yeah. 
and there's also officers who would come and go um but what is interesting is that like nearly 100 years later the spanish flu came from europe to india and the british did not take such extreme measures and also i don't think there was a vaccine available for the spanish flu i don't think so i don't there i mean not like we've since developed a flu vaccine but like i think at that time there was not like a worldwide vaccine that was spread in the same way that smallpox was done i think apparently it came from um there were a lot of indian soldiers that served in world war 1 and it came back from that from after yeah but they didn't give a fuck because they'd already had it yeah i guess the idea was that the, the flu was traveling from europe to india right so there was less of a risk of it kind of going back because it's already there um but just a, just like a couple of decades before there had been a plague out, outbreak and the british were like really militant about cracking down on that uh like they enforced a lot of social distancing rules and like kind of made sure that uh this didn't spread to the expat population but when it came to the spanish flu they were kind of hands off they're like okay you guys the community health centers you guys do whatever you want to do we're not going to do much here and interestingly in in the flu spread through the railway i mean tracking the railway networks um and the routes uh within yeah. the subcontinent so it's kind of um you know just like how right now in the pandemic like trying to figure out transport and shutting down flights and borders like you know even then that was the way that it spread to smaller towns yeah i mean i'm pretty sure a lot of the virus traveled to different part a lot of the coronavirus traveled to different parts of the world because of flights because we are much more globally connected now compared to what sars which happened in the early 2000s what's interesting i mean if you look at these previous epidemics and pandemics that we know about it's actually really hilarious the response to coronavirus because nothing is new right like all the patterns we're seeing here in terms of the spanish flu the smallpox even the plague are we've seen this before we should have been able to handle this much better but it's almost like we were like what is this does this like i think we thought we were immune because we're like have more technology it's amazing how many times the world like even the last you know few hundred years people have gone through these pandemics but it like was such a you're right like it was such a jolt like within you know within the last 100 years this has happened and a similar similar like similar kind of uh situation causes it to get out of control yeah and like i mean the spanish flu happened 100 years ago we should have like our learnings from that and should have kind of been ready for it but somehow we like the hubris of us like we just were like oh that sort of like we didn't have the technology and the facilities then we would be able to take care of it now but like a virus is a virus you have to deal with it kind of the same way so was this uh you know painting um of the queens like successful in make- getting people to trust vaccines yeah i think so because uh it made it uh like everybody was like okay if the queen is uh, the queens are getting it then it's fine for us too so it's kind of percolates from the top down so if the leadership is promoting it then everybody else will do it too right yeah it kind of makes me think that we're going to you know there's so much of like a anti vaccination kind of movement in certain parts of at least the US um that you know there we're going to need something like this to get some kind of trust and get people to get the coronavirus vaccine. <laughs> well, people are talking about it, right? People are saying that like to cuz we're also like a different political climate at least in the states where like there's so much divided by political party, but people are saying we're going to need t- 
top leadership to like show us that they're getting this virus so that people feel safe. Sorry, we need top people to show us that they're getting this vaccine. And I just want to say anti-vaccine movement is completely unscientific and not a legitimate movement, but disinformation is out there. So they'll need something to combat the disinformation. They need something to combat the disinformation and it's going to need to be top leadership and actors and, you know, people that people trust that are on Instagram live getting their vaccine to, I think, promote that. Like people say that it's when Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, his wife, got coronavirus that people started to take it a little bit seriously. And, you know, we've had issues around it still, but like you need people to come out and be like, I got it. So interesting question. Who do you think should get it both in America and maybe globally to like inculcate trust? Well, no, I'm just going to say that in India, you know, Amitabh Bachchan got COVID and then his whole family, you know, or most of the family did too. And um, that that like left the nation a little like stunned and they were like tracking his recovery. <laughs> so you need somebody like, you know, somebody who's really going to captivate the audience like that. And Amitabh Bachchan is used to it. So uh, if you grew up in India, you have probably seen the hundreds of ads that he did for polio oh, vaccination. Yeah. I mean, this is my own bias, maybe, but I don't think there's like an anti-vaccine movement in India. No. Let's not be like too sure of ourselves, but I want to say like most people in India trust vaccines because we have grown up getting them. Not only that, but in India, you see the like, this is what's wrong. And people talk about this with the anti-vaxxer. Allow me my soapbox for a second. Because in America, we've done such a good job of getting rid of like measles and smallpox and all those things, rubella, mumps, rubella, people don't see them. So then they don't understand why you need a vaccine and how devastating the illness can be. In India, people see these diseases because they're not wiped out yet. So they are protecting themselves. They're like gonna, they're trying to save themselves. So, I mean, there might be some people who don't believe in vaccines, but it's not like a movement. Like they don't have like celebrities, like not that Jenny McCarthy's a celebrity, but like, you know, she's the face of the freaking anti-vaxxer movement. I mean, India only became polio free recently and, and Pakistan still isn't. Right. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different context. And like people see the effects of polio in like, I have a I have an aunt who was afflicted by it when she was a child. So like when you see so, how it can change someone's life in such a drastic way, you're like, give me the drops, man. Whereas like I think America's too protected. Like I think the number one person who should Instagram live her vaccination is Michelle Obama because people love her and they will do what Michelle Obama says. I second that. Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, definitely. The- Oprah. Yeah, but also I think some people on the Republican side, I want to say. I'll tell you right now, in India, Modi's gonna live stream his vaccine. (laughs) Here's my vision for Modi. Modi G, if you're listening, I'm serious. Put on the suit that has the pinstripes that say Modi on them. (laughs) Roll up the sleeve, do a poster, do a recreation of the Vadyar Queen poster with like, and do it across lines. It's Rahul Gandhi, Modi, and in the, and Arvind Kejriwal all showing. Let's have a moment of unity around the vaccine. I'm picturing it right now. <laughs> Hire me for your PR. Modi is known for like his like 
announcements. Like, suddenly he'll be like, tonight at 8 p.m., tune in, the nation. Like, I'll be live. And then you have no idea. He, like, does, there are no leaks about what it's going to be about. So, like, this is how he, like, demonetized all the currency. Like, you know, in three hours, all your currency is illegal. Like, so three hours, lockdown of the entire nation. So, like, people, like, really freak out when, like, he's, like, announces that, like, 8 p.m. he has an announcement. So I'm seeing it now. <laughs> we will hear 8 p.m. announcement, and it's going to be him getting the first round of the vaccine. <laughs> no, I do want to say that Narendra Modi is, like, one of the few like leaders of a nation that's ravaged by this virus that hasn't actually gotten it right like boris johnson got it justin trudeau got no justin trudeau's wife got it donald trump got it prince charles got it amit shah got it though amit shah did get it amit shah got it nitin gadkari got it tulsi not smriti irani got it smriti irani affectionately still known as tulsi aka a lot of the ministers in India have got it. But I'm just saying, you gotta give it to Modi's bubble. Would we even know if Modi got it? Like, yeah, I think we, we don't know. know. Like, he's like, he's like, I'm too cool. Corona like Trump doesn't. tried to hide it too. Like, Did he? I mean, I think so. Yeah, I think it was like uh, one of the reporters from Bloomberg uh, broke the story that Hope Hicks had it, and she had been with you know, him in de- debate prep. And that's, you know, it just put a lot of pressure on them to disclose it. I mean, maybe they would have maybe had to disclose it later anyways, but I think it, it because of the journalists' access and journalist leaks that we got to know. So yeah, whatever. Modi has some sort of bubble, whether virus protection or information protection, but that thing is tight. Like nothing gets in or out unless he wants it to. In conclusion, get someone. A lot of people are going to have to get involved in an effort to, once the vaccines are ready, to um, you know do these campaigns and increase the awareness. And if anyone wants to come on 3 Daisy Things Live to get their vaccine, we're here for it. <laughs> Even though this show is not live. But we'll do it, we'll do, we'll do it live. Or, or video time. media. <laughs> If you want to come on a podcast and get your vaccine. If you want to come on this podcast and three weeks later hear what someone reacting to getting a vaccine, <laughs> we are available. For a historical-based podcast, it will be history. All right, that was it. That was the first episode of Three Desi Things. I am Saurav Datar. I'm Geetika Kalu. I'm Veda Shastri. And email us at... 3daisythings at gmail.com You can find us at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you may get your podcasts. Please subscribe, leave comments. It helps other people find our podcasts. And most importantly, please wear masks. Please practice social distancing. And we'll be back next week with some more cool stories and facts.